And if you've got your Bible, if you will go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. And we're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 17, we're just going to be looking at two verses tonight. Verses 3 and 4. So starting verse 3, it says, So pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we open up your word, we ask uh, that you would minister to our, our minds and our hearts uh, through your word. God, that as we tackle a topic that sits um, uh, at the center um, of, of so much of our, our life and um, God, there are our spiritual reality and, and the way we engage with other people. God, so much of our lives are tied up in, in this concept of forgiveness. Um, God, that you would speak deeply to us in this passage, that we would not um, read it and hear it and understand it in a superficial manner, but God, that, that you would use uh, your word to put down roots in our in our hearts um, and that uh, those roots would grow uh, and uh, produce fruit um, in keeping with repentance. God, that you would use your word to convict us uh, and to mold us in uh, the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I've been on a C.S. Lewis kick lately. <clears throat> um, I think I'm always on a C.S. Lewis kick a little bit, but but uh, but more so than normal right now because we've been working through mere Christianity with the youth at Mother Church and doing a book study on it. Um, and I can't remember if I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but we were, we were in the, the middle section. He's kind of talking about Christian ethics in a, in a general sense. And he has two chapters on sexual morality. And he talks about it at the beginning of one of them where he says sexual morality is probably the most, uh, unpopular doctrine of the Christian faith, right? It is, it is the aspect of the Christian faith that the secular world looks to with most, sort of disdain and going, eh, you know, I'll accept some of this stuff, but I don't, I don't want that part of it or whatever. Um, the chapter following the one on sexual morality is the one on forgiveness. And he starts off that chapter and he says, on second thought, I changed my mind. The least popular doctrine is not sexual morality. It's forgiveness, right? Um, and it, and I think he's probably right. Um, it is, it is forgiveness that in many ways sits at the heart of, of people's beef um, with the Christian faith, whether or not that is 
uh, horizontally, uh, horizontally related or vertically related, right? Whether it has to do with how we are made right with God and how forgiveness plays into that or how we live at peace with each other and how forgiveness plays into that. And so uh, now why is that? Why would forgiveness be so unpopular? Um, I've said it over and over again. It's something that you hear me say a lot is that I think if you want to give one word that defines our existence, our character as sinners, most succinctly, that word would be self-justifiers. That's what we are. The most at our core being in terms of our sin nature, we are self-justifiers, okay? We love being in the right. We love defending our position of being in the right, and the reality is this, forgiveness strikes at the heart of that self-righteousness, okay? Um, that self-justification. It's funny, today I was sitting in the car and I was looking for, you may notice that we're missing our mic today, and that's because I lost the adapter somewhere. To, I don't know where I lost it. And I was digging through the seats in my car, looking under things, and I pulled open a seat, and there was Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together CD, like the, the book sit on CD. So I was like, oh, well, when I'm driving between places, I'll just stick it in, right? And I put it in, and it started playing chapter four at a random place, and he makes this comment. He says, uh, this was today right before church, and he said, um, uh, self-righteousness and condemnation of others are always together, right? Nobody is ever self-righteous and then thinks everybody else is righteous too. They're always paired, self-righteousness and condemnation of others, which ties exactly into what we're talking about, right? Because unforgiveness is, is exactly that. It is condemnation of others. Um, and so I was like, thanks, Dietrich. Uh, I'll, I'll take that with me. Um, thanks for confirming what I was going to say um, already as we started this passage. And so um, we love being right. We love defending our position. Forgiveness strikes at the heart of that um, because forgiveness says, man, we have to let it go at some point. We have to move on from this. We cannot continue to relate to people forever on the basis of how they have wronged us, right? That's a, that's a good word for our society right now, whether they will hear it or not. Um, but, but here's how I want to talk about forgiveness tonight. It's a very short passage, man, but there's a lot of stuff in these, in these few verses. And so what I want to talk about is, is forgiveness in these terms. First off, the prerequisites for forgiveness. Second, the conditions for forgiveness. And three, the limits of forgiveness. And I think each one of those things reveals a, a hang-up that we have about forgiving people, or as we talked about last week, a scandala, okay? A scandala was something that is a stumbling block, something that causes us to sin. We have these scandala in our hearts, these stumbling blocks that keep us from forgiving the way God has called us to. And so we see that, I think, in this passage in a unique way. So let's start at the beginning with that verse 3. Now notice something. We started with the passage Pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves. If you were here last week, you realize that's where we ended last week's sermon. Okay, and so you might say, well, which one, when he says pay attention to yourselves, which one is he talking about? Is he looking backwards to the previous passage or looking forwards to this passage? Well, I think, and the reason why I preached it that way is it's looking backwards, right? That watch yourselves is connected to the previous section. But here's the deal. Interestingly, linguistically, it's it's 
indiscriminate, right? It could go either way, okay? And so there's the possibility, and in general, of course, it's true that what Paul is saying to us is he's saying, guys, you need to pay attention to these things. When we're talking about temptation and stumbling blocks, you need to pay attention to this. When we're talking about forgiveness, you need to pay attention to this because the reality for both of those in all of our lives is this. You probably think you've got a handle on those things better than you actually do, right? Um, and so you need to be a little more you need to pay a little more attention to those these things in your life, to temptation, to forgiveness, because odds are you are not living um, in a way that is exactly how God would have you to live according to these things, okay? And so we start in that with that little half a verse or whatever, but then there's there's a period there, and we get to get to the meat of what we're talking about. So first off, the idea of the prerequisites for forgiveness, okay? What does he start off with? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, stop for a second and think about this. This is a passage about forgiveness, right? Does that not seem like a weird thing to say at the beginning of a passage about forgiveness? Like if, if you were just going around and saying, hey, I want, I want to teach you something about how to forgive people. The first thing that you would expect him to say would not be, you go and rebuke them for their sin, first off, right? That just doesn't seem like... It, it flows right. But here's the deal. I think that's exactly the point how the Bible is teaching us about what forgiveness actually looks like compared to the way even the world would try to frame forgiveness. The fact that it, the fact that it starts here speaks volumes about the way the world misunderstands how forgiveness works. Okay. And so here's the reality. And I know you have because, because you're just like everybody else. Um, the world typically thinks of forgiveness when it talks about it in terms of selfish motives. So I'm sure you have seen the same TV shows and movies and Hallmark stuff and pop songs or whatever a thousand times to hear the messages of forgiveness in, in those movies. Um, you know why you need to forgive because it's what's best for your emotional well-being, essentially, uh, is the idea. Um, to uh, Don Henley, some of you guys know who Don Lee Henley is. Don Henley, Henley opines in, in one of his songs, you keep carrying around that anger, it'll eat you up inside, right? That's the idea. The reason why you need to forgive people is because it's going to destroy you. Like it's, it's like a cancer that is growing in you, and it's going to destroy your life if you hold on to that, okay? Now, here's one thing. I'm not saying that's untrue. Uh, that unforgiveness, bitterness, grudge holding, vengeance, those things will eat you up inside and they can destroy your well-being. But what I'm trying to point out is um, the Bible doesn't start with that idea, though. The Bible doesn't start with your well-being when it comes to forgiveness. The Bible starts by saying when someone acts sinfully against you, confront them about it. Why? Why would you do that? So you can be a self-righteous jerk. Everybody can know how awesome you are. Uh, and you're the guy that calls everybody on their sin. Is that why? No. Because that is that sin is not just about how it affects you. It's about how it affects the person who has sinned against you as well. This person who has sinned against you is an image bearer of God. A brother in Christ, or at least we presume so. Remember last week we talked about he's speaking to the disciples about discipleship, okay? The person who sinned against you is a brother in Christ. 
And that person is sinning against God and sinning against their neighbor. Do you want them to sit in that situation? Do you want them to sit in a situation where um, they will be led to their own destruction because of their sin? Broken fellowship with God, broken relationships with other people. The reality is, is we're called to bring our brothers back from the brink. If they are living in sin and committing sin against other people, we're called to say, man, I don't want this guy to die. I don't want him to continue to destroy his life and other people's life by just ignoring it and letting this sin go and just not addressing it. And so forgiveness begins, one, with a sense of justice that says we have to deal with this issue, and two, a sense of love that says, man, I want to do what's best for this person. I don't want to just let them keep on living in their sin hurting me and hurting others and hurting themselves, I want to I want to do something about this because I love them and I want what's best for them. So the, the question maybe is, is, well, why don't we start there? The Bible starts with confronting someone about their sin when they sin against you. Why don't we start there, typically? Just for the record, we don't, okay? Uh, we don't start there. And I can say as a pastor, I know we don't start there because most of you, <laughs> have come to me at some point and said, this person did something against me. And I'm like, well, cool. We should deal with that. Well, I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> Ash, I want you to deal with it. Okay. Um, that's common. Everybody does that because we don't want to deal with the sin on the up, up front. Why? Well, again, I can give you a couple of reasons. I'm not saying any of these reasons is specifically your issue at any given time, but I can I can tell you what's in my own heart and head sometimes and what I've seen in other people. One, we love being self-righteous victims. Oh, man, we love it. It feels so good. It feels so good to be a self-righteous victim, to be able to have conversations off to the side and whisper to people about how this person did me wrong and I would never do something like that. And I didn't do anything to warrant that. And, and I can't believe they would act that way and, and things like that. We love that feeling. And it's like inner John. Okay. That's a transformers reference. You know, guys don't get that. Um, we love it. Okay. Um, two, we don't like conflict, man. Even people that like to fight don't always just like starting fights. Okay. Like I've said before, I kind of like to fight. Like I, me and Christy get in an argument. I would rather win than lose. Um, but I don't, that doesn't mean I want to start a fight necessarily. Conflict is a mess and most of us want to avoid conflict. And so we don't want to have to get in that conversation because that's going to be a hard conversation to have. And then third, and there should, could certainly be more reasons, but the third reason why we don't want to do this is because we know that the second we rebuke somebody else's sin, they're probably going to turn around and rebuke our sin. And we don't really want anybody rebuking our sin, okay? But here's the reality. The prerequisite for forgiveness, for forgiveness to actually take place, real forgiveness, it requires the difficult, awkward, sometimes painful work of confrontation, of rebuke. And again, usually we don't want to do the hard work of accountability with people. We don't want to hold people accountable to things. We just want them to stop doing things and then leave it alone. Okay, so that's the first thing, sort of the prerequisite of what has to take place and the Bible leads us to. Now, here's an aside, and I'm going to push it back a little of what I just said. Okay. Um, 
the Bible also tells us in first Peter chapter four, that love covers over a multitude of sins. All right. So as we grow in love for one another, as we grow in self-awareness and recognizing that we all stumble in lots of different ways or whatever, um, there will be a lot of little issues that we just let go. Okay, so this passage, when it tells us to confront people who have sinned against us, is not telling us to make mountains out of molehills. That's not what this passage is about. It's not telling us to blow up everything out of proportion and make a big deal out of every little issue. That's not what it's talking about. All right, man, probably like many of you, when I'm tired and hungry, man, I get prickly. Okay, like I just get a little, look at Christy, she's like, right? I just get a little prickly. I come home and and I walk into a house and like people start yelling at me and telling me things and I'm like tired, hungry. I just get a little prickly. Okay, well, here's the deal. Christy knows that. She knows exactly my prickliness. And so when I'm prickly, when I walk in the house, she doesn't, the first thing she doesn't start doing is going, Ash, you are sinning against this family. And, you know, she doesn't do that. Okay, because she knows Hey, Ash gets a little prickly when he's tired and hungry. I get a little prickly when I'm tired and hungry and stressed out. That's just how life is. I understand my own sin and, and nature of the sinner. My love for, for my husband and my wife, my family, it covers a multitude of sins. Okay. And so again, not saying that this means make a big deal out of everything, but the reality is, is if something has really hurt us, if something continues to be an impediment in the trust, and unity and kindness that we're supposed to show as followers of Jesus Christ, um, whether that exists in a marriage or in a church or in a friendship or a business relationship or whatever, then man, it needs to be addressed. Like you need to do something about it or else it is going to sit there and be a rot and a cancer that destroys not only your inner well-being, but their life and their well-being. Okay. So then, so we got the prerequisites. What about the conditions for forgiveness? The next line says, if he repents, forgive him. All right. When he sins against you, confront him. If he repents, forgive him. No other caveats. If he repents, forgive him. Here's the deal though. We don't want to do the hard work of accountability, but also we don't want to do the complicated work of reconciliation. Because reconciliation, figuring out the issue, can get kind of complicated, all right? In a sense, I think forgiveness is supposed to be conditional and unconditional at the same time. What do I mean by that? Okay, well, let's talk about it from an unconditional sense. Forgiveness is supposed to be unconditional. But when I say that, I don't really mean forgiveness is supposed to be unconditional because I think it's the way we use the word, but it's not what we really mean. We mix up the content, uh, the concepts of forgiveness and mercy or grace. Grace and mercy over here, forgiveness. We end up calling them the same thing, but they're not the same thing. Forgiveness, full forgiveness is very conditional. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But grace and mercy should not be. They should be unconditional. What I mean by that is grace and mercy should be a posture, a position that we are standing in. It's about where my heart rests as a matter of course when it comes to conflict. It is an open stance to another person. It's basically saying, I am willing right now to reconcile and put this issue behind us if you are willing to do what you're supposed to do, okay? 
That's what the, that's what I mean by the unconditional mercy and grace that we sometimes call forgiveness that we are supposed to extend to people. We are supposed to always be ready to reconcile and receive back. Okay, but we know the reality is is that's not how many people are. We've, I know we've got Jane Austen fans in here. Um, you, many of you, have read Pride and Prejudice, and you're all in love with Mr. Darcy. Um, many of you are, anyway. Um, here's what Mr. Darcy says at one point. It's a great line. He says, I cannot forget the follies and vices of others as soon as I ought, nor their offenses against myself. My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. Okay? There's a lot of people who that's their attitude with the world. You do something to ruin my good opinion of you by sinning against me, and it's gone. There's no getting it back. There's no forgiveness. There's no rectifying the situation. There's no reconciliation. I know what kind of person you are now in my heart. And from this day on, you're that kind of person. What if you come in and apologize? Doesn't matter. I know what kind of person you are now. Um, what if you come and try to, to bridge the gap and heal the wound? Doesn't matter. I know what kind of person you are now. Okay? That's not the attitude that we are supposed to have. The attitude that says, once I've been wronged, there is no forgiveness. The Bible calls us to this position of grace and mercy that says, I am open to reconciliation. I'm prepared to forgive. A position that is willing to let the issue be over and undone with and, and, and move on. In fact, probably something more than just the willingness to. Not just willing to reconcile, but pursuing reconciliation, wanting it, looking for reconciliation. The spirit that is at the heart, I think of a lot of the issues in our national discourse right now, is is the reality that we don't want to forgive each other. Um, we want to keep the moral superiority. We want to keep the high ground in arguments. Sometimes we want to punish other people. Sometimes we want to avenge, right? We want vengeance, not even just not even just punishment, but vengeance on other people. We want to make them pay. We don't want to reconcile. We want to to, to meet those meet in the middle and 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 figure this thing out. We don't want to move forward. But the Bible shows us that we have to be people who show mercy and forgive. Why? Because we have been people who have been shown mercy and have been forgiven. We must always be ready then, always in a posture to receive someone back and forgive them if we can. Okay, That's the side in which I mean forgiveness is unconditional. But here's the deal. Forgiveness is also very conditional. Okay, because forgiveness is always and this is another unique aspect of the Christian understanding of forgiveness that I think it's left out of most things. Forgiveness is always a response to repentance. Okay, there can be no true forgiveness if there is not repentance first. Okay, notice the wording again. It says, if he repents, forgive him. It doesn't say just forgive him no matter what happens. It says, if he repents, forgive him. Now, again, don't, don't misunderstand me. That's why I made a distinction between the grace and mercy that is unconditional, the posture that we are always having towards somebody. But for the reconciliation of forgiveness to actually take place, the person who has wronged somebody has to acknowledge that, 
has to come to grips with it and has to come and ask forgiveness. Again, I I think this is the unique way that Christianity understands reconciliation and forgiveness. It realizes there is no real forgiveness. Whatever you have towards that person who you have forgiven, who hurt you a long time ago, but they never acknowledged their sin and never sought repentance, whatever you have done that you are thinking in your head is forgiveness, it's not biblical forgiveness. It may be openness and grace and mercy, but it's not at, you haven't forgiven them because that's impossible without their repentance. If the offending party doesn't repent, acknowledge to some degree their sin, mourn over it at some level, hurt over the offense that they have caused, then there's no way that forgiveness can actually take place. There can be grace, there can be mercy, you can be open, you can desire reconciliation, you can seek reconciliation. But true forgiveness is is not going to be accomplished. Consider this, it's no different with God. Which again, I think is how some people mistake things. God's forgiveness of us is in response to repentance. Now it gets complicated with God, right? Because it is God's initiating love and power that is what stirs the repentance in us in the first place. But the reality is this, there will be nobody in heaven who did not repent. Okay. God doesn't just say, ah, I'll get over it. Right. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just say, no big deal, sin all you want, because I'm a forgiving God and I'm going to get over it. That's not how the Bible presents it. The reality is God doesn't just get over it. There can only be forgiveness if we go to God in repentance. Again, the key is the clarity of those two concepts. We extend grace unconditionally. I'm ready and waiting, I want, I hope, I pursue, I make allowance for, I sacrifice for reconciliation. God has done that, has he not? Just like the father and the prodigal son, he stands waiting, looking for his son to come home. He's not like the older brother who has written the the son off. The father stands waiting for you to come. He is ready. The second he shows up, he's like, give him a ring, give him a feast, give him a robe. I'm, I'm glad to have my son back. What does he do? Past that, he sends his son into the world to die, to make it possible that we could be forgiven, that we could be reconciled to God. But he does not forgive us where there's no repentance that has taken place. Where there is no repentance, where there is defiance and offense, there's only condemnation, there's only judgment. So we must unconditionally show grace to people. That is want to receive them back, and yet without rebuking their sin first to elicit awareness and then encouraging them towards repentance, and without them actually repenting, there can be no forgiveness. All right, so that leaves us with one other concept, and that is the limits of forgiveness. And our problem with it is that we don't, whereas with the other ones, we we didn't want the accountability of it, right? We didn't want the mess of, of, of figuring out reconciliation. Man, we don't want, in this case, to do the humbling work of long-suffering. We don't want to do the, the humbling work of long-suffering that comes with 
forgiving people over and over again. Because here's the deal. I think probably many of us, if we could be convinced that forgiveness was going to be an isolated event, maybe we could get over it, right? We could say, well, you know, everybody messes up sometimes. If they just do it one time, then I can forgive them, I guess, and, and let bygones be bygones, right? But but what about a person who is a repeat offender? This passage says, what about the guy who sins against you seven times in the same day? That's a lot of times to sin against somebody, Okay. Certainly, we can't forgive that person, right, who continually sins against us. What what does the saying say? Fool me once, shame on you. But fool me twice, shame on me, right? You you sin against me multiple times, I'm not going to continue to forgive you. I'm just an idiot for having let myself be sinned against, against, again. We don't want to be someone who is continually taken advantage of, who is continually disrespected, who's continually put in a position where we have been stepped on in some way. And yet, verse 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Again, that would probably include me going to him seven times and rebuking him for that sin. But we don't want to usually do the costly work of long-suffering. It's way easier to just write somebody off. And not have to worry about it anymore. It's way easier than bearing up under offense. So again, there's no denying that forgiveness and ultimate really reconciliation can be a long process. Okay, You probably have relationships like that in your life right now. People who you have been at odds with because of a sin committed against you, possibly for years, possibly for decades. Okay, possibly for your entire lifetime functionally, there has been someone who has sinned against you, who has never sought repentance, who has never confessed their sin to you, who has never turned from it, who has never asked for forgiveness of you. And you recognize, man, this is this may go on for a long time, may go on for my entire life. Who knows how long it will take? As this point passage points out again, um, someone who shows some level of repentance, but um, but maybe it doesn't just seem to stick, right? Like this guy says, yeah, I'm sorry I did that thing to you. I'm going to do it six more times to you today, okay? But I'm sorry I did it. And then they come back the next time, and five more times though, right? And at some point, I know what you would say because I know what I would say. They're not really repenting, right? Because if they did, they wouldn't keep on doing this to me, okay? But the this passage doesn't seem to give that as an option doesn't seem to immediately negate their repentance just because they continue to sin again. And I don't know about you, but that's a really good thing to know, okay? Because if repentance is fake, if you ever sin again, then we're all in a lot of trouble, right? Because the reality is, is our example for long-suffering, our example for someone who has sinned against over and over and over again, and yet continues to forgive over and over and over again, is God And we're the offenders. We're the ones who have sinned against God and continue to over and over again. Sometimes in the same way, sometimes we just make up new ways to sin against God. We try things out, things we've never done before, just to sin against him. And yet God is long-suffering with your sin. He repeatedly welcomes you back, despite the fact that we have sinned over and over again. Oftentimes over the same stumbling blocks, the same temptations that we should have known were there, 
and yet nevertheless he receives us back. So the Bible would say, forgive others as the Lord has forgiven you. You have tried his patience too. You have taken advantage of his grace too. You have used his forgiveness too. Just as that person who has sinned against you has. So you know what? Just as God has welcomed us back, we should welcome those people back or be prepared to welcome them back. And the reality is this, is God has made the ultimate sacrifice in an attempt to open the possibility of forgiveness. Even though he was the one who was wronged, his glory and worthiness were the ones that were offended, which certainly outmatches any claim to dignity that we have when we're sinned against. Even though he was wronged, he still stands waiting to receive us. He still stands waiting for us to turn from our sin, acknowledge our guilt, and to seek reconciliation. And so we start to see in this passage, and I'll kind of close on this, we start to see why the idea of forgiveness is so integral, not only to the way we interact with each other, but but primarily to our salvation. It's the reason why when we read passages, I don't know about you, but this passage has always struck me just a little bit, makes me uneasy. The place where it says, if you do not forgive others, the Father will not forgive you of your sins. There's always a little piece of me that goes, that feels weird. What about saved by grace through faith? Doesn't that get a hell free card? Doesn't that work on forgiveness too? But the reason why that passage is there is because, man, forgiveness is so tied in. The way we forgive others is a recognition of the gospel. Right. It shows that we have understood the gospel, that we are living the gospel out in a way. When we fail to forgive others, we're demonstrating the fact that we have misunderstood what forgiveness is all about, misunderstood what reconciliation is all about with God, even if we claim to have been reconciled with him. Because God does exactly what he said in this passage. God acts the way that he has called us to act in verses three and four. God confronts us. He rebukes us in our sin. He says, I will not allow this sin to be neglected and your righteousness to be sullied. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to confront you with your sin. But then in grace, in that merciful posture of God, he stands ready and waiting to receive us back. But guess what? That reception is conditioned on something. It's conditioned on faith and repentance. God doesn't just abstractly forgive us of everything, right? We have a word for that. It's called universalism. The idea that Jesus has died and that's just going to automatically cover over everybody, no matter what they've done or who they are or what they believe or anything else. That's called universalism. We talked about it in C.S. Lewis book study the other day, and we don't believe in it. It's not what the Bible teaches. Our salvation is conditioned upon faith and repentance. And I know that gets complicated when we think about the sovereignty of God and how it is God that is calling and wooing and enabling us to believe and repent. So it gets complicated, but it doesn't change anything. There's nobody that's going to be in heaven who hasn't had faith and repented. Nobody's going to be there that way, okay? Our acknowledging of our sin and turning from it, our acknowledging and turning to Christ And then what do we do? Just like this person who sins seven times in one day, we fumble through our sanctification. And yet God is patient with us. God is long-suffering, 
never giving up on us, always looking forward to the day that we will be made perfect in Christ. That's the reason for our hope, the reason for um, us to, to have any hope of eternity, the reason for us to believe in any kind of reality of salvation is because of the way that God has forgiven us, the way that he has acted out the forgiveness that he calls us to forgive others in. So I'm going to end there sort of abruptly, right? Because obviously there's a whole lot there for us to consider. All these different elements of forgiveness, because I think the reality is, is probably for all of us, none of us live in light of these things on, our, on an everyday kind of basis. It is a, it's something that should convict us. It's the reason that passage starts off with, pay attention to yourselves. Because the reality is, is we have probably not been the kind of forgiving people that God has called us to. So what I'd ask is that we go to the Lord in prayer, that you would kind of look over that passage, you would think on it, that you would meditate on it, that you would pay attention to yourself, check yourself, okay? Look to your own life, your own heart, your own relationships, the people who have wronged you, the people whom you have wronged, and see if God doesn't have something for you to do, some way to pursue forgiveness or extend forgiveness that you've held back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We thank you for um, the forgiveness that you have offered. God, you did not owe us forgiveness. God, you could have put us in a situation where despite our repentance, despite our our um, turning from our sin, uh, that it wasn't enough, that it just wasn't enough, and, and you would not be beholden um, to receive us. And yet, God, that is, on a, at, at the same time, this is your character. Um, it's who you are. God, you are a God of grace and love and forgiveness. You could not be other than that. And God, we are so thankful um, for that reality that we have a God who is good and gracious to his people, who welcomes them back, who is long-suffering. Father, help us to be those kind of people uh, to those around us. God, particularly to the family of faith, particularly to those whom we are in relationship through uh, Jesus Christ and through the church. But God, let us extend this kind of forgiveness as a picture of your grace and mercy um, to all people. God, as the world forgives in, in one way or, or doesn't forgive, God, let people see a difference in the way uh, that we treat people, the way that we um, seek reconciliation with people. Let people see a difference in, in the grace and mercy that we extend and the willingness to forgive uh, and reconcile uh, and uh, let the past be in the past. Father, we thank you. 
We praise you. We ask these things in the holy 